Hey, what's up, Resonate? Thanks, good to see you, every single one of you here. If you're joining us from Hayward or online or our families uh, there, I want to welcome you. So glad that you're joining us. And before we start, I just want to just pause to say something that you know I realized I was doing as I was flying uh, this week from Dallas to here. For some reason, God just provoked me with the question, what if I died? Now, I normally don't think this when I fly. I'm not afraid of flying. I fly all the time. But for some reason, I thought to myself, well, what if I die? Who, who's the last people that I want to say something to? And obviously, I thought of my, about my family. So I started like, writing letters for each and every one. And I just started sending it to them. And, 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 and I realized this is one of those moments where I just want to pause and to say and that I thought of you. And that um, if I had died, you would have, I would have left you a note. And the note would have said, um, um, it was a pleasure doing God's work with you. It, it's a joy. And I love you. And thank you for loving me so, so well in our church. And wherever you are, um, that goes to you too. So grateful for you. Um, no, I'm not having a heart attack or anything. I don't plan to die. Um, but I just needed to say that just in case. Something happens in the future that you know where I stand with you. I'm so grateful for you that we're on this mission together. And with that said, um, I want to show you something. You know, have you ever seen these and you've been given one of these, you know, at a wedding or at a company party? Uh, a drink ticket. Don't you love drink tickets so that you can redeem them for Kool-Aid? No. You get one of these and you take it to a bar and they'll serve you whatever drink that they have behind it, right? You get a free drink ticket. What if today God were to give you not a drink ticket but a salvation ticket? Imagine, imagine if God gave you a ticket where you could spend it on anybody, one person, and instantly they'll receive the grace of God and they'll be saved. The question is, who would you give it to? Who would you give it to today? Is it your parents, your mom, your dad, maybe your prodigal brother, your sister, or your best friend, your uncle, whoever it is, your neighbor maybe, that instantly, if you were to give it to them and redeem them, they'll be saved? Who is that one? Who is your one? We're in the sermon series called For the One. Uh, and we're reorienting our hearts that was inwards through our last sermon series that was all about, you know, free indeed. Like, let us liberate ourselves from the bondage that we've been kept in. And now we are looking outward. We're orienting our hearts, our minds, and our bodies towards the outside of the church. And we're, we're studying this series from Luke 15. This is where for the one idea comes from, that Luke 15 has three parables that Jesus tells, one about the shepherd that leaves the 99 sheep to go after that one that was lost. Then there's a woman who loses a coin, and because she, uh, her coin is precious, she searches the whole house, flips it upside down, and finally when she finds that coin, she celebrates, she calls all of her friends to have a party. And the last parable was one about the prodigal son, the one son that moves away and that goes away to squander it, everything eventually returns back, and the dad throws him a great big party. And this is the way God feels about you. And this is the reason why Jesus tells this story. Because he puts all those three parables together for a central focus idea for you and I to understand that Jesus also left his heavenly home to search after you. You are his one. And this is why you are here today. You are his one. And so for those of us who are found, 
We will spend billions upon billions of years from now until forevermore in the presence of God in heaven. Amen? Amen. We will, and that's good news. And yet, that is a blink of an eye then, the, the time that we get to spend here, the 80 years if you're lucky, 90 years if you're really unlucky, you know, just living here, you know, just, and, and it's the blink of an eye. It will all go away. And the task that God has given both you and me is the task to reach the world, to give this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they too may be found. Now, historically, churches have been really faithful over the generations, generations upon generations, passing off this gospel message. And yet I I saw this week something rather quite disturbing. uh, An author named Tom Rayner, who wrote a book called Bridger Generation, shows this statistic I think is rather quite startling. The statistic goes like this. Um, If you are 65 years old or older, in your generation, 65% of you are Christians. And that's marvelous, though there is still there's work. But if you happen to be in the generation where you are 46 years old to 64 years old, only 35% of us, that's my generation, are Christians. That's pretty drastic. That's almost half. But if you happen to be from 34 years old to 45 years old, that decade alone, only 15% of that generation, according to this book, are Christians. And what's more drastic is if you happen to be somewhere between 16 to 33, only 4% of you are Christians. And if you look at these numbers, and these numbers are even close to reality, there's a very serious problem before us. Literally, we're about to lose a generation of the gospel, and it's happening on our watch. My question to you is, do you care? Does this matter to you? Because at the end of this day, at the end of our life, you know, we have lots of choices here on earth, but at the, in eternity, there's only two choices, heaven or hell. In the next 365 days, 76,000 people in California will lose their life without Jesus that in the next 365 days, 3 million people in America will die without the salvation of Jesus Christ. That in the next 365 days, 67 million people in the world will die and be separated from the one that loves them so deeply because nobody has, has told them about this glorious gospel. And the question is, do you and I care? Because recently we saw the great tragedy of the fire that happened in Lahaina, Lahaina in uh, Maui. And our hearts were gripped. And we we're on the internet, on all the social media, looking at this and saying, wow, what a great tragedy. We have a great uh, heart for Hawaii. We think this. We believe this. Do you know that 115 people, souls were gone from that tragedy? And still about 300 people are left unfound. We're broken by that. And my question is, church, are you broken for the 67 million people that will lose their lives forever this year? And next year, 67 million more. And next year, even greater than that, over and over and over again. You and I need to wake up. You and I need to orient our hearts to the outside of our church. Yes, it's glorious, it's wonderful that we gather, but we must be sent 
to share about this gospel. This is why Martin Luther King, 60 years ago, once said this. He says, so often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. And if today's church does not recapture the sacrificial and evangelistic spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. The status quo. You see, you and I must address the anemic culture within the church, but we also need to look at the lost um, culture that is of the world. And when you look out into the world, you'll see that the world, particularly Americans, have embraced what we call functional universalism. You know what functional universalism is? It kind of goes like this. Like I said, this Thursday I was flying from Dallas, coming in, and I had a spiritual conversation with a person right next to me. Now, I don't say that because you have to know I don't share the gospel wherever I go. In fact, I, I do almost do the opposite. I'm like an introvert. I like to stick to myself. I like to read books. I like to work. That's what I like to do, right? But the only reason why I did it is because the pastor that I Ubered to the airport with shared the gospel with that guy, and I felt guilty, so I needed to one-up him. And so, so I needed to share the gospel with this guy. And we got into a great spiritual conversation. He was from San Mateo. Um, we'll just call him Brad because that's his real name. And, and, and so Brad, Brad's such a kind-hearted guy. And he found out that I was a pastor. We, we started talking. I said, hey, what do you believe, Brad? And he said, basically, I believe all good people go to heaven. I'm like, who's good? He's like, oh, pretty much everybody. And he has this functional view of this uni universal belief that if you're just a decent person, then God, who is like, you know, really kind and who's really loving, will redeem you, will rescue you, and will save you at the end of the day. It doesn't matter if you know him and what his name is. It doesn't matter, right? As long as you're not Hitler, as long as you're not a child molester, as long as uh, you recycle, as long as you do those things, you're good, right? You're saved. That's what he believes. You know, if you live a decent life, You'll go to heaven. And this is what most Americans believe. They don't, they're not atheists. You realize majority of Americans are functional universalists. This is what they believe, that if you live a decent life, you'll go to heaven. And when I asked Brad on what account he believes that, he says, well, it's just my feelings. It's just my opinion. And what I want to do with the remainder of our time is to not share my opinion. Because I don't have a book of opinions. I have a book of the word of life. This is the authority of God, the truth. And what I want to do is I'm going to share Paul's perspective, which is quite different than Brad's. And, and I want to share with you Romans chapter 1 through 3, which is heavily theological. And next week, I want to appeal to your hearts. The week after that, I want to share, you, share with you how to uh, share the gospel with other people. So that's kind of working with your hands. But today I want to really focus on your minds and give you a theological appeal as to why we must share the gospel right now. So with that, if you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Would you turn to Romans chapter 10? We'll study the first three chapters, but we're going to go to Romans chapter 10, verse 14, because that's the concluding, the main idea 
that I have for our sermon today. And if you would, if you could, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? And I'll pray once again that the Holy Spirit preach a better sermon than the one that you're about to hear from me today in all of our campuses. So this is the word of the Lord. How then would they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That is the word of the Lord for this great Sunday morning. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Please have a seat. Now, the logic that Paul presents in the first 10 chapters of Romans of how we are to share and why we must share the gospel moves through six steps. And if you're taking notes, here's the first. All people have been made aware of God. All people have been made aware of God. And Paul makes this case. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, so that they are without excuse. Say, without excuse. You and I are without excuse. What Paul says here is according to this text that God made himself known to every human on the planet. Well, how? Well, he explains it in the next few verses. First, he says, the glory and the beauty of creation teaches us that God is a creator. This is what he says. He says, when you wake up and you look out into the sky, you look it into the ocean, you look at the mountains, you look at all created things, You don't just live every day thinking, huh, that just appeared out of thin air. That's not what you say. In fact, when you go into these villages where the gospel is not there, and yet you find them, you find these indigenous people, one thing that is radically common in sociological studies is that you look at them and they already have a religion. Well, who taught them? Well, they taught them because it's in their hearts. It's in their souls. Because we reject this idea that nothing from... um, from nothing, from nobody equals everything. That, that doesn't make sense. That's not real science at all, right? We, we have something. We look at something, and there's this innate beauty, inherent love, this pain that we try to make sense of, and experiences of our family. And we look at the ocean and the mountains. We say, behind this creation must be a creator. And this is deeply embedded in us that we see each other and we say, wow, I look at my sons, I look at my daughter, I look at my wife and say, you are made for eternity. You're, you're not made to die. You're not made to just simply evaporate. There's something behind you. And Paul says, creation testifies of this great creator. But secondly, he goes on to say that we innately have a sense of right or wrong. Now, this is a moral argument that no other animals have a disposition. Everybody else has this animalistic nature about them. But for us, we have reasoning. We have a conscience. And we know what's right or wrong. And what Paul, uh, the case that he's making is, when you and I know that we're doing something wrong in our hearts, we know that, we know that um, ahead of us is a lawgiver that will keep us accountable. Because the law that is written in our hearts we know that that is an indicator that somebody is writing these laws. And we look at them and say, oh, 
I'm going to be kept account of that. Just like I was rolling through an airport recently and, you know, there's an automated voice, automated voice that says, you know, please take out your boarding pass and your ID, right? And I know in that long line at the end, I'm going to be accountable to whip that out. In the same way, when you and I feel like something's wrong or you and I are doing something wrong, we know that on the other end, soon, very soon, we're going to be account kept accountable from a lawgiver who we have to ultimately answer to. Now, here's the obvious question. You say, well, how about the atheists who naturally don't believe in a God? And could I tell you, according to Romans 1, atheism is an acquired belief, not an innate one. It's an acquired one that you almost have to train yourself to not believe rather than train yourself to believe. Because naturally, we're given this law, naturally we're given this creation to look and say, there must be a God. And you have to work really hard to deny that fact. You have to work really hard and disciple yourself to not believe in a God. Let me give you one fascinating case. And one of the most landmark person in our history of America is a woman named Helen Keller who was blind, deaf, and mute. And she was completely cut off from the outside world all the way into her teenage years until a person named Annie Sullivan, a teacher, came into her life and decided to teach her how to communicate. And so she ran her hands under water and through a series of taps started establishing an alphabet where through that alphabet she was able to communicate with Helen Keller. And once she learned that, it took years to do that, but once that was established, uh, Annie, who was uh, a Christian, uh, asked her pastor to come and share the gospel with Helen Keller. And so one day the pastor comes, shares the gospel, and Annie Sullivan translates with these series of taps on Helen Keller's hands. And the biography says this, and then she got across the idea about God. Suddenly, a light broke out on Helen's face, and she answered back in her own way. Oh, I know him. I've known him a long, long time. I just didn't know what to call him. Wow. Even in the heart of somebody who has no eyes, no ears, no mouth to speak, God had written himself into that heart, into that heart. So Romans 1 tells us that people have been made aware of God, all people. But here's the second thing. We all have rejected God. We've rejected God. And according to Romans 1, 18 again, it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, ready, suppress the truth. Say suppress. You and I suppress the truth. So we know of God we know what he's saying, and yet we suppress it. And the universal response to the revelation of God is suppression. We don't like it. We resent the fact that God wants his glory. We resent the fact that in the throne of our hearts, God sits in it. We resent the fact that he wants monarchy where he rules and he reigns, but instead we want anarchy where we want self-rule, self-reign. We want the last word of our lives. We think we're the creator. We think we should know better. And so these are the reasons why we reject and suppress God's truth. It is our choice. We have to train ourselves. And according to Romans chapter 1, we suppress the truth in two ways. And boy, when Paul was saying this, it's like, dude, you nailed me, bro. Because he said, number one, we tend to pursue things 
above God. Do you pursue things above God? And the answer is yes and amen, twice on Sundays, right? I mean, we constantly put things above God, money, sex, power, whatever it is, your interest. And secondly, he says, we disobeyed what we knew to be right, is what Paul says in verse 32. We knew it was right. We knew it was wrong, but we chose to do otherwise. Number three, we are now then guilty before God. Yes, so we are made aware of God, then we rejected God, and therefore we're guilty. Romans 3, verse 10 says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. Romans 3, 23 then says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and therefore you and I deserve wrath of God. And somebody asks always, Is it fair for our small sins to deserve such a big punishment as the eternal wrath of God? You might say, well, I'm not that perfect. I know that I'm not perfect, but I'm no murderer. I haven't murdered anybody. And to that response, I say, are you sure? Are you sure that you haven't murdered anybody? You know, um, I often think that we underestimate the wickedness of our own depravity, that for every single person in this room, including myself, you and I have committed cosmic treason against God in our rebellion, and we did it by murdering his son. And the best way I could just understand, explain this to you is imagine if God reset uh, your sin button and immediately you're pure, you're, you're, you're clean. You have not sinned once. Right now, ready? Get set, go. No, none of us have sinned. We're all going to heaven. This is great. Don't sin, everybody. Don't sin. Okay, hold on. Now, here's the question. How long do you think you could hold? <laughs> How long? How long do you think you could hold? It's like almost like getting water into your hands and you eventually, like, it's going to seep, right? How long could you hold? And let's say you even knew that the moment that you sin, either you die and go to hell or Jesus does for you. Which do you choose? 100% you kill Jesus cosmic treason. He's our king. He's our Lord. He deserves our worship. But we have a choice to not sin, but we sin anyway. You and I are sinners. We're wretched. We cannot hold out, not for a year, not for six months, not for a month, not even for a week, or maybe even an hour. Maybe you could hold an hour if you take an hour nap. <laughs> That's the hope. And even in our dreams, we might say, I don't know. But you and I are wretched sinners. We cosmically um, cause this treason, this rebellion against God. You see, I volitionally choose that. That's cosmic treason. So let me summarize the first three points. We are guilty before God, not because of not what we have not known, but what we have known and yet rejected. We've known it, but we reject it. Do you get that? That means there's no innocent person in this small village in Kathmandu. You know, all have rejected them. So here's a question. So would it be fair if God condemned us for not hearing the gospel of Jesus? The answer is, of course not. But what Romans 1 says is that that is not why you and I are condemned. The reason why you and I are condemned is because we have known, and yet we still have rejected. That's why we are condemned. Now here's a bonus question. What about babies then? Are they saved or are they condemned? Or how about special needs friends? 
are they guilty before God? Well, let's just play out the same logic here. You know, why is the wrath of God given? Because we suppress the truth. Remember, we knew the truth, but we suppressed it. And the question is, do babies know the truth? See, babies have sinful inclinations. But the thing is, they don't know the truth. And Romans 5.13 says this, sin is not counted where there is no law. See, or there's no truth. You see, the question is, do babies have truth? Yeah, they have inclinations of sin, and they'll act out in sin, but they know no law. So they can't suppress the truth like you and me. What you and I are condemned is because we suppress the truth. Babies can't compress, I mean, suppress truth. Why? Because they have no truth. Same thing with you know, our, our um, special needs friends. In fact, there's a great passage in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 31, where it says, when all of Israel sinned and they were kept from the promised land, look at what God says about their children. It says, as for your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. Ah, do you see that? See, children are not accountable because they don't know good and evil. They don't have the law to suppress. But outside of the age of accountability, now you and I do, and we have suppressed. This is why when the conscious soul is activated, Paul concludes that we've suppressed the truth about God. And this is why we've, we, we are guilty of cosmic treason. Here's the fourth. All have been given a way of salvation, which is good, good news. Every single one. Christianity is the most inclusive religion in all of the world. Romans 3 verse 21 says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who what? Believe we are justified by his what? Grace as a what? Gift through the what? Redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Believe grace, gift, and redemption. Message number three, I'm going to actually go over some of these components so that you could share the gospel with your ones that you have in your life. But for today, let me just run by them real quick. Number one, grace is unmerited favor, which means favor has come to you, though you did not deserve it. Secondly, gift. Gift is free. Okay, but here's the biggest mistake. Gift, it wasn't because you did something. Gift was given to you like all gifts, but it wasn't necessarily free. It was just free to you but it wasn't free to God. He lost his son. He paid a steep, steep, deep, deep price. It was a gift to you. Redemption, that gift is articulated and lived out through an exchange. You had to redeem something. And so you gave God your sin and Jesus took it upon himself. He received all of the sin, all the wrath. It says, the Bible says, he drank the cup of wrath. He drank it all the way to the bottom, down to the dregs. And he slammed the cup into his proverbial table and said, it is finished. It is done. And so that means you and I did not taste a single drop of this wrath. It all went to Jesus Christ. And so we have been completely redeemed. And how do you get this? How do you receive this? All you have to do is to believe. And this is what makes Christianity the most inclusive religion in all the world. Though we say there's only one way to, uh, to salvation, which is Jesus. But it's so inclusive because you don't have to obey. You don't have to do anything. You have to just believe. You have to receive. You don't have to live this life for a particular way, a particular years to particular uh, intensity. No, you must believe genuinely. Receive this. Grace, gift, redemption. All has, 
have been given the way of salvation. So fifth, then, all must hear the gospel to be saved. All must hear the gospel to be saved. Romans 10, verse 14. How then, Paul says, will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of God. Listen, Paul says the only way your one will actually come to faith and believe and to receive this grace, to receive this gift, to receive this redemption is if they hear the preaching of the gospel. That's the only way. And will you say, my goodness, maybe, and I think I believe that my neighbor, he's a really good guy and he's almost a Christian, well, how am I? He's almost a Christian. You know, he's, he's really nice. Have you heard that? Man, he should be a Christian. He's pretty much a functional Christian. He lives like a Christian without, he just doesn't know Jesus. Have you ever thought that? My goodness, have you ever looked at a dolphin and naturally it, says, it has a smile on his face? You know, you think the dolphins are really kind. Well, my neighbor's like that. You know, he just has a natural, happy disposition about his face. He's a really kind guy, and I think he's going to be saved. Some Christians think that person is saved. Essentially, what you're doing is you're shopping out the burden that God has given you as a calling. And you much rather hope that somebody else do the saving. Listen, that is disobedience. That's denial. That's not truth. And what Paul says is that only through a human instrument shall this person be saved. That's the only way because a human instrument speaks the gospel. When they speak the gospel, they'll receive it and they'll call upon God. That's the way a person is saved. In fact, there's no other instrument in the New Testament that goes forward in preaching the gospel but a human. Could I show you? In Acts chapter 10, now I hope you mark this, Acts chapter 10, verse 1, there's a great story. It says, and there's a certain man, his, his name is Cornelius, a centurion of, of what was called an Italian regiment, a devout man, and one who feared God with all of his household. By the way, he's not a believer. We'll get to that. Who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send for Peter and he will tell you what you must do. Now, this is a fascinating conversation between the angel and Cornelius, because simultaneously, if we read Acts chapter 10, you'll see that Peter's having his own vision of Cornelius. An angel has visited him and said, you must go and see Cornelius. So Peter goes to Cornelius and says, Cornelius, you know, um, I, God sent me to talk to you. And Cornelius says, um, I've been expecting you. God gave me a vision of you, Peter. And Peter's like, God gave me a vision of you, Cornelius. And what, what happens here? Then, then finally, Peter preaches the gospel. He preaches the gospel. Then in Acts chapter 10, verse 43, Peter concludes a sermon to Cornelius by saying this, to Jesus, all the prophets gave witness that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. Now listen, he preaches the gospel. Notice Peter doesn't say, hey, Cornelius, by the way, God has noticed that you're a good guy with a dolphin face. And because you do that, you're, you're, you're probably saved, you know. Uh, you, you have this implicit faith in you, and, you know, God kind of likes you. And so, you know, you're probably saved, even though you don't need to hear the gospel. 
It's not what he says. He said, you must hear the gospel. You must hear this in order to be saved. You must believe. Peter says, you must believe in Jesus. Then you'll see, receive the forgiveness of sins. In fact, it is ratified in the very next chapter in Acts chapter 11 when Peter excitedly tells all of his buddies, his disciples of this account that he had. In verse 13, Peter recounts the stories to his apostle friends that says this, check this out, boys, boys, check this out. Cornelius told us how he had seen an angel standing at his house who said to him, send for Peter, who will also tell you by words, words by which you and all of your household, listen, not has been saved, but will be saved, which means that they weren't saved before Peter came. It means it required Peter to go and speak the gospel to them in order for them to be saved. And here's my point. Ready? Don't miss this because you paid for this. You came for this. That in the New Testament, the gospel never goes forward except through a human instrument. It's the only way. And that should sober us because God tends to use only people to get the gospel message out, nothing else. I mean, think about this. Wouldn't it have been so convenient for God and for us if the angel shared the gospel, right? The angel that actually visited Cornelius and then the angel that visited Peter, Peter could say, why don't you just do it? You're probably better. You know, he didn't do that. What did he do? He said, Peter, you must go and share the gospel. Cornelius, he says, you must hear the gospel. A person's coming after you. His name is Peter. He's not that pretty. You know, just that's what he says, kind of. So, so it's always a human instrument. And that's why Paul says here in verse 15, listen, how will they call upon him of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear unless they are sent? See, Paul doesn't give another option than for us to go. And this is the reason why when we gather as a church, online, in Hayward, here in Fremont, every time we send you out of here, we say, now live sent. What that means is that, yeah, we come here for fellowship and training and equipment and gospel preaching. And from there we go and we're sent into the world which number six, then finally, the movement of why we must preach the gospel is you must share the gospel with your ones for them to be saved. You must share the gospel to your ones. Everybody has a one. Listen, do you think that maybe God is stirring up this burden in you. Maybe, maybe you think, gosh, you know, it was Labor Day. I, I was thinking I should come to church or maybe I shouldn't go to church. Darn it, why, didn't I, why did I come today? Because now I'm burdened by this. Now I'm called out by this. Maybe, could I just tell you, maybe you're here because God had an appointment with you. That God sent an angel to talk to you. By the way, I'm not that angel. But anyway, like, do you, you know, could you imagine God talking to you? At the same time, God right now, because you're hearing this, is talking to your Cornelius. Because we all have a Cornelius. And maybe God is talking to them, giving them circumstances, giving them the spirit in which they are understanding. Maybe, you know, my friend is going to come talk to me. Maybe as God is preparing them, God is at the same time preparing you. Because after all, how will they believe if they have not heard? How will they hear if, they, if you and I are not sent? Listen, suburban Christians, 
the idea that somehow God is preaching to our friends, our people that we love, that we dearly love, that, that we would give this one ticket to, that God is moving in the midst of them and God is communicating the gospel to them while we decide to live out our suburban lives, to watch all the Netflix we want, to eat all the bonbons we want, to watch all the college football we want while pursuing our little interests that we all have, golf and knitting or whatever you do, that we are doing that while God is doing his work is at best a convenient fiction. But the inconvenient truth is this that God is moving in you to think about this person, to love this person, and to go after this person and to share the gospel with that person. And there's no plan B. You can't assume that anybody else is coming for them. And so let me ask you a question. If you could choose, if you could choose between, first, somebody who is actually found to be charged to find another person, or somebody who's completely lost, and who's dependent, utterly dependent on being found by a found person, which would you choose? I would think very naturally and logically you would all choose to be found. To, from there, go find somebody. And this is a task of every single Christian has been found. And you know what? If your lost friend, your one, had a voice, they would say, surely my found person, my found friend that loves me is going to come after me. Think about this. Like, if I lost my baby girl, I would be frantic. I wouldn't be here. I, I'd be out there searching for her. And my only hope is that my baby girl is saying, I'm going to stay put because my daddy's coming to find me. My daddy is coming to find me. I know how scary it is, but if my daddy is coming to find me, she would know that. And that on the other end, I would anticipate that she's waiting for me, so I'm going after her. And I'm just asking you, just out of all the ones that you and I have, how tragic it would be if at the end of our lives, they would discover that you were never looking for them. That you and I give lift service to say that we love them that we would give this ticket. And every person who's holding this ticket is only a permission to share the gospel for yourself. Would you please go and share with them? And this is why Charles Spurgeon once was approached by somebody in this congregation who said, Pastor, I'm having trouble with understanding how people who have never heard about Jesus can't be saved. And Spurgeon said, yeah, well, that, that's a troubling question. But here's an equally troubling one. How can those of us who have heard about Jesus and do nothing to take the gospel to those that don't, how can we be saved? How can, you and I have received the gospel. How could we not do anything? So there are three options here, only three. Number one is we could deny it. And you know what the denial is? People who deny this kind of stuff deny the Bible. And what we do, we'll look at the Bible and we'll only take the things that are convenient to us and the things that inconvenience us, we'll start trying to change it. We'll, we'll go away from the plain reading of Scripture and we'll just like make it our, our own, you know? We, we examine the Scripture rather than Scripture examining us. See, so you start denying it based on your convenience, you know? And you don't let the Bible shape you. You shape the Bible. 
When you do that, you, be, you have become a functional universalist. That's what you become. So the second thing you could do is you could ignore it. This is a reality, this is truth, and you just kind of plug your ears and say, I want to think about better things. I want to think about 49ers winning. You know, I want to think about the, uh, you know, the Giants making the playoffs, even though that's impossible because I'm a Dodger fan. You know, all that stuff. <laughs> like, all that stuff. You, you think about these things. You're like, you just kind of you divert your attention to something else when the reality is there's something tragic in the face of our lives right now. Our loved ones are longing for us to share the gospel with them. Or the third is you could embrace it. You could just embrace it and say, Lord, I've been running from you. One of the earliest encounters that I had when we were planning a church 13 years ago, we had a core group of people and one person came outside and said, you know, pastor, I've been a I've been a Christian for most of my life. She was like in the early 60s, and she's coming. She said, I've been a Bible believer and Bible follower, Jesus follower for 50 years, over 50 years. And she, in her tears, said, I've never shared the gospel once. To her guilt, to her shame, I grabbed her and hugged her, and I kissed her, and I said, I'll go with you. And you know what she ended up doing? Long story short, she ended up actually sharing, not in the airplane, that's easy, I'll never see bread but she did it to her neighbor. She shared her story, her testimony. Listen, let me close by showing you how the gospel demolishes two fears that we have. Real quick, fear number one. We fear that we think that they might think we're better than them. You know, the Christians are better than them. You know, Christians, gospel Christians, could I talk to you for a second? There should be zero air of scent amongst us. If they even think that we're kind of better than them, we should radically correct them. We should say, no, 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 no. You see, I, you know, I, I was dead in my transgressions, not sick in my transgressions, and I didn't obey myself to help. I was dead in my transgressions, and the only way I'm alive is Jesus in His kindness and His grace had to raise me from the dead. And so there's not an ounce of effort that included me. It wasn't because I was a good Christian or I obeyed or I went to church or I pray more than you. That's not a reason why I'm a Christian. Jesus found me and now he sent me to find you. This is what he's calling us to do. And so in one sense or another, every Christian in this room shall never ever feel a sense of superiority over anybody in this world. They're not lost in the way where we like, oh, they're lost. They have no idea what they're doing. No. They were lost like we were once lost. And, and, and another, one person said it this way, like, I'm just a beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. We're, we're all beggars. We just know the, where the bread is, the bread of life. His name is Jesus. And yet the fear number two is the biggest one, which is, man, they might reject me. I'm scared of rejection. And to be honest, this is the number one reason why you and I don't share the gospel. We're genuinely scared of being rejected. But the same gospel that makes you not feel superior over anybody else will affirm you to the heights. This is what the gospel does because the gospel says that Jesus still chose you even though you and I are a wretched sinner. And he gave us a gift that we couldn't earn. He gave us a full righteous life that he lived and 
accredited to our account and our sins went into his and he he paid for everything and while we pay for nothing we only gain the benefit now we have this incredible honor as if we had lived this perfect life and this is why our father looks at us this morning and says you are my beloved son you are my beloved daughter in whom i'm well pleased while we're wretched sinners still this is the only thing that makes sense of our lives that god god will never abandon us never leave us because he loves us to that degree well done well done good and faithful servant and this is why noah was able to penetrate through his culture and build a big big boat in the middle of like nebraska like somewhere like crazy and everybody was making fun of him everybody was making fun of him he was getting rejected and rejected and he just looked at god and said i just want to please you because i know that i'm i have your pleasure same thing with moses everybody was against him he had to liberate his people but his people were against him pharaoh was against him and yet like lord i don't know what to do but i i just want to please please you and jesus at the desert as he was preparing himself for the public service the public ministry he heard god rain down from heaven the voice of you are my beloved son in whom i am well well pleased and jesus was affirmed that's all he needed and could i tell you if this is enough for jesus it is enough for you and me well done well done good and faithful servant you are my beloved daughter son in whom i'm well pleased if that is true who cares what the serfs say if we have an everlasting love and everlasting affection from an everlasting king who will rule forever that's the encouragement and the affirmation you and i have today so out of that let's enter into the love relationships that we have with our ones and let's share the gospel with them in the most broken way possible and god will do the work but you and I have to be sent. Would you go with that confidence? And this is why William Tinsdale once said this. He said, Christ is with us to the very end, so go, little flocks. Let us be bold. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you that we were once somebody else's one that you moved to share with us that there's not a single person in this room or in Hayward or online that just found ourselves to be Christians. No, people have shared with us, people long for us, people pray for us. All ways that we'll one day discover in heaven, but we're blind to now. And there are people who are maybe being moved right now because there are Corneliuses and that we are the Peters who are being spoken into now to go. Lord, may we find courage in knowing that we're not better than them, but you have affirmed us to the heights so that no rejection from this world feels like a sting to us because we have so much healing in you. Oh, we love you. And we thank you that we have been found. Now, will you send your church, will you send me to our ones for your glory, your glory alone. And it's to that glory you deserve, Christ. And it's to that glorious name we pray and we thank you. And all God's people said, amen. Let's give him a glorious Thanksgiving to the Lord.